proper understanding of the second coming of Christ and its bearing on our behavior while awaiting his coming is the driving force behind Paul's letters to the church in Thessalonica. The young church had some fundamental misunderstandings about the second coming. And it was affecting not only their confidence in what they had been taught, but their witness in the community. One aspect of their behavior that was especially troublesome to Paul was hinted at in his first letter. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12, he writes, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. As he draws this second letter to a close, he gets even more pointed. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, we read, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. Some in the church hadn't made it their ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to their own business. He will soon refer to them as busybodies. Here he says they are leading unruly, disorderly, undisciplined lives. And we will soon learn that they aren't working with their hands or otherwise. His command to the church is framed in the most authoritative way possible. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as an apostle, anything Paul said carried the full weight of Christ's authority. But he wanted to make absolutely certain that they didn't dismiss what he had to say as simply his opinion. They were being commanded in the name of Christ to keep aloof from certain members of their church. Now, the word translated aloof was used for the, the furling of sails when they were gathered together to keep a ship from sailing. The church was being ordered to stop heading somewhere from doing something they no doubt thought was the right thing to do. And he had just prayed that the Lord would direct their hearts into the love of God. And keeping aloof, withdrawing from a brother certainly would not seem to be the loving thing to do. And yet here he's commanding it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church was being commanded to withdraw from unruly brethren. From brethren who wouldn't follow the tradition, the teaching and practice that had been given to them. From brethren who broke rank 
who walked disorderly, who exhibited an insubordinate spirit. It was a military term. Unruly, disorderly, undisciplined brothers and sisters were to be disciplined by the church. And he's going to explain in detail what that discipline should and should not look like as he continues. But before he gets there, he's going to make certain they know how to identify the unruly, undisciplined brethren. And to make clear how their behavior is not in sync with the example the apostles had set. An example a disciplined church would be sure to follow. Continuing and bringing to a close our study in 2 Thessalonians, we're in chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, that you might follow our example. In his first letter, Paul had said basically the same thing. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12, we read, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, Paul wasn't boasting about his and Silas and Timothy's behavior. He was lifting it up as an example for them to follow. When in Thessalonica, they had acted devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly, certainly not unruly, disorderly, undisciplined. And they had done so not only because their commitment to Christ demanded such, but to set an example for their children in the faith. They not only taught right behavior, they modeled it. They knew better than expect, do as I say, not as I do, to build Christian character in their children. If they wanted their children to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, they would have to walk in a manner worthy of the God they proclaimed. No one earns the right by virtue of his position to walk in an unworthy manner. No one gains a stature that places him beyond being held accountable for his actions. No one in the church can consider himself above the need to walk devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly before God and man 
and no one can consider himself deserving of a free ride. Now, Paul does write in 1 Corinthians 9 that those who proclaim the gospel are to get their living from the gospel. Doing so, however, is not a free ride, contrary to the opinion of some. Paul compared those in ministry to soldiers, farmers, and even oxen. He referred to them as fellow workers, fellow laborers in the kingdom. And in 1 Corinthians 9, 7 through 11, he asked the following questions. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sakes? Yes, for our sake it was written. Because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? Paul then went on to make it perfectly clear that he had every right to be supported by the church with whom he was ministering but that he chose not to do so. He didn't want to be a burden to anyone. And he did not want to give anyone the impression that the gospel was for sale, that he was peddling the word of God. When going into a new community, he supported himself. And since he was a tent maker by trade, that's what he did. But if co-workers later came to town with funds from previously established churches, he would stop making tents and devote himself completely to preaching and teaching the Word. Now, Paul had arrived in Thessalonica with his co-workers. So while there, they kept working night and day in difficult labor and hardship to be able to proclaim the gospel without becoming a burden to anyone. They had done so for another reason as well, to set an example for the new believers. The example of working with their hands and living productive, disciplined lives. Now, when Paul said they didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it, he wasn't suggesting that they refused to accept hospitality only that they never expected a free lunch. They took responsibility for themselves and their needs, and it was imperative that everyone in the church do the same. Verses 10 through 13. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone will not work, Neither let him eat. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, 
doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. He doesn't restate it in his first letter, but Paul had said something rather shocking while in Thessalonica. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. And apparently, he said it more than once. We used to give you this order. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. Now that sounds so uncharitable. So unchristian. And I doubt that it's emblazoned above food pantries today. If someone is out of money and in need of food, we've been led to believe we have a Christian obligation to give them something to eat. After all, didn't Jesus say, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat? And didn't he say that he would tell those who gave him nothing to eat, depart from me, accursed ones? into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Remember, Jesus said we wouldn't know it was him we were refusing. He would look like a stranger to us. I don't know about you, but I don't want to risk the fires of hell by refusing to give a stranger something to eat. So what do we do? Paul gave the order, if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. But Jesus made it clear that we are expected to feed strangers. That doing so is the same as feeding him. And he didn't spell out any conditions that had to be met before giving someone something to eat. So how do we reconcile these seemingly contradictory instructions? First of all, we need to note that Paul is not talking about simple acts of benevolence offered to strangers. He's not suggesting that we must grill everyone who asks for food before giving them a sandwich. He's talking about providing for the daily needs of people we know. Specifically, brothers and sisters in the church who refuse to work. He's talking about enabling an irresponsible lifestyle. Especially in the church. He had told the Thessalonians in his first letter that they were to make it their ambition to lead a quiet life, to attend to their own business, and to work with their hands. 
And they were to do so not only so they wouldn't be in need, but to give a good impression of the church to outsiders. Those outside the church were not to be given the impression that the church was a safe harbor for lazy, irresponsible freeloaders. And those inside the church were to make certain that it wasn't. Those in the church who would not work were not to be fed. Now, of course, we must take careful note of the fact that Paul's order related to those who refused to work. Not to those unable to work or not able to find sufficient work. When legitimate needs overwhelm a brother's ability or resources to meet them, we must help. In the book of Acts, it's noted that those in the early church often sold personal property and possessions to be able to help brothers and sisters in need. Paul isn't suggesting that we ignore one another's needs. Love demands that we care for one another. When Jesus said all men would know we were his disciples by the love we have for one another, he wasn't suggesting that they would note the intensity of our emotion. They would see the way we care for each other. Paul isn't telling us to stop doing good for one another. In fact, he specifically instructs us to not grow weary in doing good doesn't want to see in the church are those who lead undisciplined lives, those who do no work at all and act like busybodies, those who stick their noses in everybody else's business but don't care for their own. Such persons Paul commands and exhorts to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. And he does so in the authority of and in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. If they refuse to do so, the church is called upon to act. The church is called upon to admonish unruly, undisciplined, irresponsible brethren. Verses 14 and 15. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. And yet, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Church discipline is hard. And it's even harder today than it was in the early church. In the unlikely event that discipline is threatened in a church today, most people simply change churches. They didn't have that option in the first century. If fellowship was withdrawn... 
If others kept aloof from someone in the church, he would sense the loss of fellowship. And discipline could therefore be very effective. The one being disciplined would have to face the consequences of his behavior. And since he couldn't hide from what was happening, he would be put to shame. Appropriate shame is not a bad thing. We should be ashamed if we give Christ a bad name. And living undisciplined, irresponsible, unruly lives does just that. That's why Paul took it so seriously. He called for the church to take note of an unruly man and to not associate with him. Now, he doesn't take it to the extremes he does when writing to the Corinthians. They were being called upon to deal with something even more serious than not working and being a busybody. They were facing blatant immorality in the church. First Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, we read, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourself. Paul referred to the immoral man in the Corinthian church as a so-called brother. His behavior made it evident that he was not in a saving relationship with Christ, that he was not a part of the body of Christ. Because of his wickedness, he was to be completely removed from the church, to be excommunicated. Paul said it was essential that the church removed the leaven that was in danger of permeating the entire lump of dough, permeating the entire church. But even then, they were to do so in the hopes that the wicked man would repent and come back into fellowship with Christ. The situation in Thessalonica was not that bad. Some had simply quit working and had become busybodies. It doesn't appear that they were to be completely disfellowshipped. But there was to be a noticeable change in the way they were received by the church. At the very least, social interaction with the body was to be suspended. It was to be obvious that they were being ostracized 
for their unruly lifestyle. They were not, however, to be viewed as enemies. They were to be admonished as brothers. We really aren't told why they had quit working. But the impression is that it had to do with their confusion about the second coming. And if Paul's clarifying what he had taught about the Lord's return and the need to live responsibly until he does didn't lead the unruly brethren back to a responsible lifestyle, he was hopeful that discipline by the church would. The goal was peace in the church. And Paul concluded his letter with a prayer for peace. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And this is the distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Theological confusion had led to behavioral problems that were causing division in the church. And Paul had now written twice to address those problems. It was his prayer that what he had written would help bring peace to his beloved church in Thessalonica. And since fictitious letters from him had been used to create the problems, he made sure they knew he had actually written this letter. He took the pen from his amanuensis, his secretary, and wrote the final greeting in his own hand. And when he said, The Lord be with you all, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, he wasn't using a southern expression. He sincerely wanted everyone in Thessalonica, including the unruly brethren, to do as commanded, to surrender to the Lordship of Christ. And as he had expressed earlier in his letter, it was his prayer that the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen our hearts in every good work and word. A very appropriate conclusion to an amazing letter. We'll stand.